0: going through our new series in Hosea. I want to remind you that we do have a question box that's in the back in the foyer and uh, I have received some questions from there uh, that I will be going over this evening. So in the evening service tonight um, you can hear some of the answers to some of the questions that you've given. Evening service will be the format for answering some of those questions. So I want to encourage you Whether you have questions about our Sunday school catechism or Sunday school series uh, or morning worship series or even a Wednesday series or just some general questions that you might have um, about scripture, about the Bible, then that's a good format that you can take advantage of. Write your question. Uh, It may be helpful to write your name. It's not absolutely uh, required, but it may be helpful that I can uh, um, follow up with you to see if that question if the answer was helpful to you. So if you'd like to p- put your name on it, by all means do. If, if you don't want to, you don't have to. So we'll be doing that this evening as well. Alright. Hosea 3 is a, obviously a very short chapter, but it continues the picture um, of God's revelation The Bible is God's revelation. In God's word, we get to know God and see him for who he is. God has chosen to use 66 books in the unity of one to present himself to us. And so we can get something out of each one of those books. And God intends us to get something that that shows us something about him. Now... Not only do we learn about who he is as he reveals himself to us, but we learn a lot about ourselves as well. And Hosea is is no different in that it reveals something about us and it reveals something about God. In fact, I've stated it this way, it's a stunning picture. It's a stunning picture. It's a picture of the steadfastness of God and the unfaithfulness of, of God's people. In other words, how different, how how much of a contrast we are to God, and yet it reminds us, and also uh, Hosea, the story of Hosea, does of how who God is and how we are to be like God. Hosea is called on to act before Israel, to open his life before Israel, and to act towards his wife as God acts towards Israel. And so the stunning picture is of God's love, His steadfast love, His faithfulness, compared and contrasted with Israel's unfaithfulness, their utter failure to be faithful to God. We see that picture in verse 1. Let's look at some of the phrases that remind us of this stunning picture. It says, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. We see the steadfast love that God has as he directs Hosea to do what he has done to Israel. He says, love a woman. He tells Hosea to love Gomer, his wife. And then he says this, love this woman as the Lord, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. So the overwhelming picture that we see is one that God loves Israel. And so Hosea then is to picture this by loving his wife, even though she has been utterly unfaithful. Some of the words... Used towards God is love a woman, love even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Some of the words in this verse that point to Gomer and Israel is the word an adulteress. Another phrase, loved by another man. In other words, she's broken her relationship with her husband and she's gone off with someone else to present her love to that other person. Another phrase there, in, even in verse one, it says, though they turn to other gods. It's a picture of Israel. Though they turn to other gods, Israel has turned away from the true and living God and has turned to other, G-O-D-S, little g, false gods. It's a picture of their unfaithfulness. And then he says this, they love Cakes and raisins. Now, we're not sure exactly what that phrase means, but it seems to have something to do with the false worship, the cultic worship that, that was practiced in that land by the Canaanites, uh, uh, the nations that surrounded Israel. Love cakes and, and raisins. This was something that was probably used as a part of their temple worship in some way. Um, maybe as as sacrifices in, in, in some type of a, a way but it, it shows that Israel was was going to things that were outside of a worship with God and was more closer related to the worship of the false gods of the nations around them they 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 followed the practices of other peoples that didn't know God and didn't love God rather than the practices that God had commanded them to keep from his word. There's a very simple outline I'd like to, to like us to see in this very short chapter. The first thing is that God pursues his people, he purchases his people, he purges and purifies his people and then we see his promise to his people god pursues his people he purchases his people he purges and purifies his people and then his promise to his people let's look at these points in that order He pursues his people. Notice the direction that's given to Hosea. The Lord said to me, go. Go. In other words, don't stay and wait around for Gomer to come back. He says, go. He directs Hosea to go and, and what's implied here is to go and seek, search out, seek out and find Gomer. Go. Go again, he says. God pursues his people. Now, notice what he says with this direction. Go again, and he says, love a woman. Now, Gomer isn't mentioned by name, but it's clearly, uh, she's the clear picture here because if it was another woman, it wouldn't portray what God was trying to portray. God is not trying to say that Israel left him and now he's going after somebody else. No, he's saying, Israel left me. I'm going after her again. He's saying to Gomer, it's not, he's saying to Hosea, Gomer hasn't left you and now I want you to pursue somebody else besides Gomer. I want you to go right back at Gomer. I want you to pursue her. So when he says go, go again implies as well that this is his first love. This is the one that he had pursued before, even though she's unfaithful Pursue her again. Go again. Reminds me of that great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. That phrase says, love never ends. Love never ends. We kind of have a picture in our culture that, you know, people just mysteriously, mystically fall in love and the same way, just fall out of love. Kind of just happens like something in the air. But that's not real love. It says love never ends. In fact, our reality in our culture is we understand that. That's why it's so painful. Love is when we love someone and then there's there's animosity, there's, there's friction, or there's trouble in there. It's trouble because that love is still there, and it hurts. Love never ends. God's love for Israel did not stop with her unfaithfulness. Homer's love for Gomer didn't stop because she was unfaithful. In fact, that's why it pains them, because they love someone who has been unfaithful we'd like to say well i'm just gonna cut off my love i'm just gonna stop loving you well we i think that's wishful thinking we wish that was totally possible but it says love never ends and god is going to continue to pursue after israel even though they don't deserve it and you know this israel is a picture of us god comes after us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The implication is that we had no thought of him or for him, but God did the act through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he sends his Holy Spirit to woo us and to bring us to him. And that's what's pictured here in Hosea. God commands, go. He pursues after gomer the second point is he purchases her another way of looking at purchase is to redeem he redeemed he buys her back redeem means to purchase back from a slave market and that's exactly what is pictured here he says to her he says the lord says uh, to, to, to Hosea is to go again, love this woman. And then we see the act of Hosea in verse 2. So I bought her. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. I think one thing um, I don't want to brush over is that Hosea was obedient to God. He did what God told him to do. As a prophet who was acting out his life as a story and as a message to Israel, he was obedient. But I don't think it was just wrote obedience as if he didn't have any heart in it. In fact, I don't think that can be obedience. He obeyed because he loved God and he loved Gomer. He obeyed out of love. Our obedience to God, we need to be obedient to God. It needs to be from a true and a right heart. That's not something you have to manufacture. Because you didn't manufacture it in the first place. It's the love of God that prompted you to do what you've done, it's, it's the work of God in your heart that prompted you. You need to be reminded of that and go towards that. Revelation says to, to go back to your first love, to recognize that that's where devotion is, needs to be directed, where, where God wants us to direct it. He obeys God. Now, he purchases her. and You might ask the question, who is he buying her from? Well, that needs to be answered. I first want to ask this question, though, to give us an idea. How much does he pay for her? Because that's the specific that's pointed out in this scripture. How much does Gomer pay? How much does Hosea pay for his wife, Gomer? He says, so I bought her for 15 shickles of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. Maybe I should answer that first question first. How do you buy a human being? How do you buy a person? Well, to buy a person, they must be owned by someone else. Under someone's else, as someone else's possession. The picture here is that she's a slave. Now, either she's a slave because... She had no means of support, and so her support was provided by somebody else, and so she was endeared to them as a service to provide for the support she was getting. But that's the same, it could be called a servant in that regard, or she could be called a slave. Because of the lifestyle that she had lived, she was now subject to people who would take advantage of her. And to get her out of this position, a payment had to be made so that she would no longer be under the ownership of the previous owner, but now under new management. And that would be Hosea himself. Remember in chapter 2, it gives us a hint of that. That verse 7, it says, middle of verse 7, Then she said, I will go and return to my first husband. What was better for me then than now? She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. That passage is going back from the image of of Hosea and and Gomer and, and, and God himself, the Lord, and to... Israel. But the picture there is that that Gomer would suddenly realize that she's in such a state of devastation that she's worse off with this set of, of, of people than she was ever with Hosea. I think we can learn a couple things. about this idea that she had to be purchased. First of all, the devastating cost of sin. She had become someone's property. She had to be purchased from those who owned her. When we give ourselves to sin, we become slaves to sin. We kind of think that we can bargain our way with sin. We think that we can do our own thing and come out ahead. I was watching an advertisement for a, a movie or a TV show, and, and, and they, they made the comment, and it's, it's, been, it's been said in, in other uh, sayings, of, of a person who said, you know, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. You've heard that comment before? Such a naive comment to make. It sounds like a boastful, you know, a uh, 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 really strong statement. You know, I'm not, I'm not going there to be nobody serving. I'd rather be in a situation where I could be the master and, 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 and the, uh, the, you know, the, the one in charge, even if it's in hell. I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. It's, a, it's an unfortunate statement because the person has no idea there will be no ruling in hell. And in fact, if God allowed a ruling in hell, (laughs) it wouldn't be pleasant for anybody under those circumstances. But the picture here is that Gomer's life, just like any one of us, if we give over to sin, we will be mastered by it. We will be ruled by it. We become slaves to sin. Addiction is kind of a picture of sin in that regards. A person begins thinking that this thing that they take, whether it's alcohol, something they drink, or something they smoke, or something they put into their system by some other means, that it makes them feel good. And they begin to give in to that, but they don't realize that it is ruling over them. It, it tells them what to do, when to do, and, and 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 there's a huge price they pay. They get to the point where they're willing to do anything to keep this on. They become a slave to it. That's what addiction means. A slave. But addiction is simply a picture of sin. When we give in to sin, it begins to master. It becomes a, we become a slave to it, and it becomes the master over us. And so that's, what, that's what was happening in uh, Gomer's life. Those who she ran to, to have a relationship with outside of her marriage, she thought would bring so much joy, so much thrill to her life, now looked down on her. She had nothing or very little to offer them, and she was now subject to them in a way she thought she would never be. Sin always eventually devastates and destroys. Sin always eventually devastates and destroys. It promises good things. It promises exciting things. But it always devastates and it eventually. And that's what uh, I think uh, fools many people. Since it's not always happening suddenly, it's a process. It eventually devastates. It doesn't do it all the time, quickly or immediately. It fools people. But it does always and it does eventually devastate and destroy. That's what was happening in Gomer's life. And so one thing we, 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 we get from this is the devastating cost of sin. We see that sin had brought her to such a low condition. She was once a, a woman loved by her husband in her home and, 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 and part of a faithful relationship where this faithful man, godly man, loved her. And now she's to- totally apart from that and taken advantage of by those who don't love her. And, and that's expressed this way. Let's take a look at it. It says, verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. I had to ask myself, what is 15 shekels of silver? And we, we you know, I can explain what, what the weight of shekel and how that relates to us today. Uh, so we can ex- explain what the value of silver is today. But instead of doing all that, so I, I, I just thought to do this. Let's look at the economy of the Old Testament itself and get an idea of what 15 shekels of silver is. And so let's take a look at a few passages. Let's let's look at the story of Sarah and Abraham, husband and wife, and and this king called Abimelech. Remember, uh, Abraham said to his wife Sarah, why don't you, when we go into this foreign country, you act like you're my sister, because these kings, you're a good-looking woman, and they're going to take you as part of their harem, and they're going to kill me. But if you act like you're my sister, then they won't have to do that. And so we can kind of get away. I don't know what Abraham was thinking. That didn't make much sense to me. But he, he thought he could do it his way and do it this way. But here's what happened in the process. I want you to turn with me to Genesis 20, verse 16. Now keep a, a marker in... Yeah, if you got those electronic Bibles, you can't keep a marker, can you? Um, in, in Genesis... Keep a marker in Hosea 3, we will come back to that. But Genesis... 20, verse 16 is this story of Abimelech, Abraham, and Sarah, and it, it, it offers a little bit of insight on on uh, silver and, and its value. So in verse 16, to Sarah he said, "Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. This is once, Once Abimelech learned that, hey, this woman belongs to Abraham, that's not just his sister, that's his wife, and not only that, God has protected them, and that's why you're suffering, because you thought you could have her as a wife. He never touched her, but just the idea, God was saying, you better not do that, and God showed him that, and after he realized this was God speaking, he said, whoa. Man, you almost got me in trouble. So he says to Abraham, verse 14, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. In verse 16, to Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. So this is what Abimelech gave to to Abraham because he knew he had offended or was very close to, to, to sinning against him. A thousand pieces. Now, doesn't, we don't know how pieces relate, relate to, sh- to shekels, but a thousand pieces of silver plus, he says, uh, in verse 14, he gave them uh, sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants. So, not just a male servant, singular, but male servants, plural, and female servants, plural, plus sheep and oxen plus a thousand pieces of silver. Kind of gives us an idea, right? Let's keep on going. Some more, some more thought on this. Back in Genesis, chapter 23. Now, Abraham in chapter 23 is going to buy land so that he can bury his wife who's passed away. Sarah at this point has died, and, and Abraham buys some land so that he can bury her. I want you to look at the cost of that land. Um, this is Genesis 23, verse 16. Take a look at that. Genesis 23, 16. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. Four hundred shekels of silver. Okay, so this land cost four hundred shekels of silver. Four hundred! Keep that in mind. 400 shekels. This this is shekel to shekel, so we can compare apples to apples here. 400 shekels of silver that he used to purchase a land so that he could bury and have a burial plot there. All right, let's keep going in Genesis. Genesis 37, verse 28. This is the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph was sold as a slave by his brothers, right? He was sold as a slave to the Midianites and eventually to the Egyptians. He was sold as a slave, and in, in Genesis 37, 28, the price of that is 20 shekels of silver, all right? So even as a slave, Joseph was valued as a slave as 20 shekels of silver, Kind of gives us a little thing to to compare right gives us a little a little understanding. It's just like you know you you go you go to a garage sale right you want you want to know if you're getting a good deal for something you can see what that thing costs somewhere else right and you got you got a pretty good idea, hey, this is a good deal. we better jump on this. i ain't never seen it this low. It's a good price, or it gives you something to compare to twenty shekels of silver joseph. Was uh, sold as a slave, and then again in the story with Joseph in Genesis forty five twenty two. Genesis forty five twenty two. Remember Joseph; he's now the uh, one of the head guys in Egypt, and he sends his his brothers back to to uh, Israel. He sends them back to to get their father, and he sends them with some gifts. And he's told him who he is now. He sends them with gifts, and he gives a special gift to his blood brother, um, Benjamin. And so it tells us that he gives him a bunch of stuff, and he gives him 300 shekels of silver. Genesis 45, 22, 300 shekels of silver. Now I want you to turn with me. I want you to actually turn here. Exodus chapter 21. If you have a heading on that chapter, it may look like the heading on my Bible that says, Law About Slaves. Laws About Slaves, and you can read that on your own if you like. Don't read it while I'm preaching, but take it home and read it. Uh, Laws About Slaves, but in this chapter, I want you to look at a a particular thing. Um, What the value of a slave was assessed to be in Exodus 21, verse 28, verse 29, and verse 32. Um... This is about slaves, but then it says this in verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. So it just talked about how they should deal with things in, in law. But it really is about the value of a slave, because when it gets to verse 32, it says... If the ox gore is a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. And what it does is kind of give us the value of, of in their system of what, what the value for a slave was. 30 shekels of silver. Go back to our story about Gomer. How much? How much? 15 shekels. 15 shekels. I'm going to go to one more story here. In Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 22 is the law concerning uh, I would call this the honorable wife. It says if a man had a wife and thought she was dishonorable, unfaithful, and in fact thought she wasn't a virgin before they got married and and uh, he found out, or he thought she was, and he accused her of of that. If it could be proven by her parents that she was, in fact, and they would they would show how to give the evidence of that. Um, then this man was fined for defaming an honorable wife. He was fined a hundred shekels of silver, a hundred shekels of silver, plus some other things that that went on. The point here in this. Part is that you can kind of get an idea of the value of an honorable wife versus the value of a dishonorable wife. Go back to our story now in Hosea. Hope you, hope you got something from all of that, kind of traveling through Scripture to give you their economy. Hosea pays. Look at, it kind of just speaks out when you read verse 3 now. Verse 2, I'm sorry. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, he says. Gomer's price is 15 shekels of silver. It's almost like this. Yeah, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and just throw in a little barley on the side and we will be okay. Because you don't, you don't even have to know the value it, it says there. Uh, uh, you know, we can trip over those words, a homer and a lethage of barley. I know a lethage is half a homer, so it's like a homer and a half of barley. You don't even have to worry about how much that is because, you know, barley ain't really worth much. Barley was, was animal feed, basically, what they would feed the animals, so it says, you know, basically I bought her for like 15 shekels of silver and throwing a little barley on the side and we would be okay. He bought her for a bag of chips. <laughs> he bought her for almost nothing. What does that say? What are we to glean from that? One is sin had devastated her and the perceived value she was in man's world. Because when you buy something, it's the seller who's setting the price, and it's the buyer who's okay with that price. The people who owned Gomer were saying, girl, you ain't worth much. I'll let you go for 15 shekels and a little bit of barley thrown on the side. That's what was happening here. Sin devastates us and makes us feel a very low value in this system of sin that we live in, and yet God values us because the value is not seen by what what, what Hosea is willing to pay because we're not told that. We're just told what the seller wanted. I kind of think like in most transactions, it goes kind of like this. When you, when you pay for something, both the buyer and the seller are, are pretty much content with whatever the price was. And, and, and the seller said, well, you know, I wish I could have got more, but it was a fair price. And uh, actually, I was willing to take a little less. And on the same side, the buyer usually said, well, you know, yeah, I would love a good deal and I would love to have paid less for it but it was a fair price and actually I won't tell the seller this but I was willing to pay a lot more than that that's what happens in the general transaction and it's probably what happens here but what we're told is that sin devastates us as human beings it makes us low and feeling of little value but yet First Peter tells us we're not redeemed with silver and gold or corruptible things. This shows God's value. We were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. God placed a value on us re- being redeemed, being brought back. There was no greater price that could be paid. So what we see is God's estimate and his pursuing and his mind in purchasing us versus the slave owner, the former slave owner who had ownership of Gomer was saying, I'll let her go for 15 shekels and a bag of chips. You can have her. I don't want her no more. That's what sin does. If you're going out to serve sin and you think it's going to enhance you, you have an incomplete picture of what sin does but God takes the worthless sinner me and you he takes the worthless sinner on, on, on the strap heap the, the scrap heap that's worth nothing and he buys us he purchases us back that's what Hosea did after he purchases her in verse 3 and verse 4 we see the purging and purification process verse 3 and I said to her so he bought her and then he speaks to her I said to her you must dwell as mine for many days you should not play the whore or belong to another man He says, you are now committed to me. All the past relationships that you had, the infidelities that you had, you're no longer bound to them. You're bound to me. And he makes this commitment. Look at the end of that verse. So will I also be to you. That is, that's an amazing commitment that he makes. This is what Hosea is saying to his wife that he just bought for little or, or nothing. He's saying, your past, your past ways, your, your past lovers, they are out of the picture. I'm in. And he doesn't just say it in a mean way. He says, so will I be to you. I'm asking you to commit to, to, to get away from everything else that you are committed to and come wholeheartedly to me. And he says, I will be yours. You will be mine. I will be yours. There will be a one-to-one connection and commitment that's made there. You are solely Only mine, and I belong to you, and only to you. This is a commitment. This is like a beautiful picture. This is like a wedding vow, except I think in his day and even in our day, we we wouldn't look too highly on Hosea for doing this. But it's a picture of God. It's the picture of God. God has nowhere to go and brag and say, look at my woman. But what he does go, all the bragging comes to him. Look at my love for this woman. She belongs to me, I belong to her. The glory goes to God. She doesn't deserve any of that. But I pour it out on her. I give it to her. He makes a awesome promise and commitment to her. So will I also be to you. God makes that commitment to us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can trust me eternally for the salvation that I offer and my being with you to complete that salvation that I've started already in your life. I guarantee you that. He said, this is not based on who you are because you're not worth much, but it's based on who I am and I value you highly. That makes us scratch our head. (laughs) Say, really? that's exactly what God wants us to do. He says, yes, really. It is about me. Now, God does something that no man can do. Because in this, God didn't mean for Hosea to strut himself up like he had been something. If he truly pictures God... Then he does this because, as it says in verse 1, I have loved Israel. Even though, I have loved Israel. Even though she's been unfaithful, I have loved Israel. God is to be honored because his love is so pure. His love is so steadfast. I think that's one of the reasons why we use what I think is a confusing term, unconditional love. We use that term because it's not conditioned on who the recipient is. It's not conditioned on who they are. Uh, But yet, I think that term is confusing for other reasons that I'm I'm not gonna get into all today in in this message. But it certainly points out how great God's love is and how incomparable his love is it's not fully reciprocated and it can't be because it is so great. now in this promise there's also some purification there's a process that Israel is going to go through and he brings that out in verse 4 for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sa- sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. The key word there that's repeated over and over again is without. The, Israel, the people of Israel will be without, they will be isolated, he says, and they're going to go without. This is the process that God is using to purify his people because they have given themselves over to wrong worship, uh, to wrong thinking, uh, 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 that has totally devastated them. They needed to be purified. And so he, he says, he places her in isolation in order to purify her. Israel shall dwell many days without. Now let's look at some of these without. Without king or prince. Israel had followed false leaders and they had put their trust in false leaders. Remember, when, when Israel first went from the period of judges to the period of kings, they're saying, "We want a king like the other nations." They, they were thinking that that's going to make us great, and in that they sinned against God, because God was saying, "I am your king. You need no other king." But yet they wanted a man. They wanted a visible man. And, and that was a, 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 that just showed how they're thinking they, they, they had no faith. Because they had to have something that they could see. God says, I've been leading you all along. I am your God. You don't need a, 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 a visible, a physical leader. I am your God. And yet they went against that and they cried out for another God. He says, You're going to go without, they cried out for another king, another man, another leader. He says, You're going to go without king and prince. They were to rely on God and God alone. God wants us to do that as well. Now it's not the presence of the king or the prince that makes us sinful. It's our reliance on that thing or that person. And so we need, to, we need to guard against those kind of things. When so we begin to, to rely on things other than God, the thing itself may not be a wrong or sinful thing, but our reliance on it becomes sinful. If God has given you money, if he's given you uh, uh, substance, then that can be a good thing. But when you begin to rely on that rather than rely on God, you have a sinful reliance on something. You have, you have uh, 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 replaced God with something else. You're trusting in the bank account. You're trusting in the things that you own instead of trusting in God. Who do you go for for counsel? for leadership. Do you go to God, his word, his people? Or do you go to something else? And you're placing something else in, in the place of God. And, and some people say, I don't need anybody. And what they're saying is they place themselves, whether their own intellect, their own uh, whatever they, they think uh, they are, that they don't need anything else, and they have replaced God with themselves. God is saying, you need to be purified of that. You need to go without. I need to show you that I and I alone am the one who keeps you, who provides for you. I am God to you. You need none else. You should trust in no one in my place. They were to go without sacrifice and pillar. These were false worship practices. And people today get hung up in practices. We have to be careful, you know. Well, I went to church last week, and I'm still having a bad week. Is that why you went to church? You trusted in the going of church to make things right? I don't know why I got this bill, because I paid my tithes last week. Then you have traded, you, you're practicing things so that you might get something out of it, instead of simply trusting God. And that's what they were doing. He, he says, you need to go without sacrifice and pillar. Um, these were ways and, 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 and modes of worship that they were depending on instead of trusting God. And, and, and I think that's where it hits us as churchgoers, that, that, that we can be churchgoers. Lord, Lord, look how faithful I was. I went out in five below weather, and, and I came, and I served you. Don't I get something for that? And thinking we're, we're more superstitious than we are faithful, thinking and trusting in a faithful God. And so, anything that that is, is 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 based on our own doing and our own practices, whether they be what we think is good and 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 uh, noble practices, things that we do in worship or faithfulness in that, when we substitute that for trusting in God, uh, that that is something that that is is a danger. So God says, you need to go away from it you need you you need a, a fast of those things you need to be a without some of those things so you will become you begin to trust in god they were to go without ephod and household gods These were false these were false objects of worship and ephod was something that israel was the the, the priests were to have but now they had degenerated in using things that even God had, had, had made for them, but they were using them in wrong ways. They were using them in false worship to false gods. Uh, household gods, again, were, were things that, that uh, they had made and fashioned so that they could have the likeness of God within their home. And, and God says, no, you don't need that. In fact, I condemn that. You are to worship me. And you know their, their response will be, well, we need something we can see, we need something tangible, uh, something we can see, we can look at, we can feel. Um, and so um, how quickly we take those kind of objects. If you look in the Old Testament, you see that's done. You remember the bronze serpent. What happened is Israel has sinned against the Lord, and to to uh, uh, to take away the judgment God told Moses to to, to, to take. The judgment was fiery serpents. Serpents were, were biting them. Poisonous snakes were biting them. And people were dying because of that. And that was part of God's judgment. They confessed that to God. And, and so God told Moses, take, make a bronze serpent and set it up on a on, on hill. And the people who get bit by the, the real snakes, when they, when they look at that bronze serpent that I set up, they'll be healed. And that was happening. What happened in the process, though, uh, over time, period, Period of time, people start looking at the bronze serpent. and say, Man, that, you see that bronze serpent up there? That's really cool. It's got a lot of power in that. They begin to worship that and give honor to that. And and and, and God says, "Look, you just took what I was using to show my power, and now you start worshiping that instead of worshiping me." And uh, so so God um, uh, doesn't like that. And it sh- shows how easy it is for us to get into false worship false objects instead of worshiping god himself um i know a man in the church and and i don't know his motives and and i'm not challenging no motives but i want to say this because we can easily fall into this he respects his church that when he comes into it uh, he respects his, his building when he comes into it one of the first things he wants to do is come up to the front and bow down On his knees and pray to God. Now I don't know what he's praying to God, and he may be totally perfect and and and, and fine in what he's doing. Um but what I see, the danger there is, you know, we say, Well, Lord, we thank you for this building. It brings us out from the warm, from the cold. It's five below zero outside, and we come in here and we can worship. What a great thing to have. And so we all want to come down and we want to bow down and we begin to thank God for the building. But before you know it, over time, we thanking God for the building, we begin to thank the building itself. Thank the warmth that the building generates. We begin, and, and so it's such a slippery slope to begin to appreciate things instead of worshiping God. We need to be careful in that. We need to be careful that we are worshiping God and not the objects that God has given us. That's exactly what was happening in that day, but it happens in our day as well. We understand that without the sun, without the rain, we could not have uh, crops and food and things, but God doesn't ever want us to worship the dirt or worship the sky. He wants us to worship the one who created all of those things. We celebrate so many things, but have we fallen short of actually worshiping God? Objects of worship can easily um, distract distract us from true worship to God. Is there someone you're honoring in your life, and if you're not careful, you honor them above God? Is there some place you're honoring in your life? Is there some thing that you honor in your life that you actually have put above God? God took Israel and he says, I'm going to take some of these things away from you that you might recognize who I am. He purified them. So here we are in Hosea 3, verse 4. The children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household God. Look at verse 5, the final verse here. Afterward. Afterward, after this purification process takes place because of God's judgment on his own people. So as I mentioned before in this series, we see two things happening simultaneously. And sometimes we're overwhelmed by them and even confused that God judges his people and God speaks tenderly to them as well. That we see God's judgment and we see his mercy at the same time or, or being explained to us at the same time. He says, after this punishment takes place, and this tells us the the mind of God, how good God is, he does this in order to bring about a good in our lives. He doesn't just spank us to hear us cry. He does this in order to bring about a turning from sin and a turning to him. Look at verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return. They shall return and seek the Lord their God. This is called repentance. When we turn from what is wrong, when we turn from sin in our lives, and we turn to God. After the judgment, after the purification, Israel shall return. They shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, it's interesting that he mentions David their king because you know the history of Israel. We're talking about the northern kingdom, and they never had a king in the lineage of David since they divided from the north and the south. But here he says the northern kingdom is going to return to David. Now, I'm sorry, but we have a lot of people who, who, who think, a lot of theologians... who who gets stuck on this David thing and saying Israel's coming back and they're going to be this prominent nation and David is going to be their king. Right, but wrong. The king David spoken of here is Jesus, who is the descendant, the son of David. That's why the New Testament starts out in Matthew, the very first chapter, the very first Uh, The very first book of the New Testament, the very first chapter and the very first verse, speaking of Jesus as the son of David. In other words, he fulfills all that God has in store for God's people. Jesus is going to reign. God's people are going to seek the Lord and David or Jesus as their king. And what are they going to do? They shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You know that term latter days referred to, Jesus said he was in the latter days. In other words, as soon as he came on scene, this was the completion, began the completion of God's ultimate plan. So Jesus is on the scene and he has set the scene. We've been living in the latter days for many years now, since the time of Jesus. Jesus fulfills all that God has in store for his people. And he's, he, God, that's exactly what God's plan is. He's saying, after I've judged my people, they're going to come to me. They're going to return. They're going to seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear. That's a, that's a proper attitude and worship and reverence and awe for who God is. And to his goodness... In the latter days, they're going to trust Christ as Lord and Savior. They're going to walk with Christ. We are part of the fulfillment that God has. It's not completely fulfilled because we're still living here in in, in a world full of sin. One day, Christ is going to rule and reign over all of his kingdom, and we look forward to that. Christ is the fulfillment of that. We are part of those who are God's people. Jesus is the king that God has sets up in, in, in the likeness of David or in the lineage of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. We are part of that kingdom, and all who trust in Jesus fulfill that. God is saying, my people aren't just one specific nation. My people are those who come to seek me through the Lord Jesus Christ. David, their king. Jesus is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He's the one who pursues us. He's the one who purchases us. He's the one who purifies us. He's the one who provides so that we are part of his great kingdom. You do right to trust in Christ today. You do right to live for his glory today. You do right to recognize it is God who pursued his sinful, undeserving, wicked people, me and you. Open our eyes to how great he is and caused us to return to him and trust in his Redeemer, in his King, in his Savior. All throughout the Old Testament, you would have seen the people of God saying, oh, if we only had a righteous king, if we only had a good leader, if we only had true priests who would honor God's word and lead God's people in the right way, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. I am the good shepherd, he says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Hebrews, as Brian has been going through on, on Wednesday, Jesus is the one after the order of Melchizedek. He is the King and the Priest that brings God's people back to God, in whom they should trust, in whom they should submit to, in whom they should follow, whom they should give their lives to. It is Jesus that is spoken of in the Old Testament. God is challenging us to trust in to continue to trust in to give our lives to to surrender to the lord jesus christ father we thank you for your word today we pray your people will respond rightly to you by trusting christ as their lord and savior in jesus name we pray